0: As the Delta variant of COVID-19 has surged over the past month or so, the rate of cases has been on the rise. When we recorded this episode, the Arizona Department of Health Services reported over 2,500 new cases. With all this going on, one group in particular is seeing a big jump in cases.
1: As debates about mask mandates in schools rage on in Arizona, pediatric cases of COVID-19 are on par to surpass the cases from the winter surge. Vaccines have proven to be beneficial to people who are contracting the coronavirus, but currently children under age 12 are too young to be vaccinated.
0: And our children are some of them. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your co-host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez with Ron Hansen. This week, we wanted to talk to someone who's experiencing this trend firsthand. Away from the discourse on what schools should be doing, shouldn't be doing, how much money they'll get for doing or not doing it, doctors are on the front lines of treating these young children who are being affected.
1: Today, we welcome pediatrician Dr. Salil Pradhan and pediatric infectious disease specialist Dr. Angela Wiesenmeyer to the gaggle. They both work at ValleyWise Health Center. Doctors, thanks and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Children seem to contract COVID at the beginning of this whole pandemic at much lower rates. It seemed to be one of the saving graces of all this that the youngest in the population seemed to be somewhat spared from this. That really doesn't seem to be the case at this point. So help us understand how the uh, situation has evolved for younger people in the population, especially in the uh, Delta phase of all this.
2: So, yeah, you're absolutely right. At the beginning of the pandemic, it appeared that children were much less likely to get sick from COVID as well as to spread COVID. Now with the Delta variant, one of the ways that the virus mutated was to bind much stronger and faster to the ACE receptors in the lung. And so what that means is that this variant is faster spreading and more easily spread between kids and adults as well. And we don't know for sure if it's more likely to cause severe illness. I think we're still learning about that. But certainly we do know that it's more easily spread person to person. And the other thing that we know is that it causes higher viral load in the nose, which means that there's just more virus in an infected person's nose, and it may or may not be causing symptoms at that time, but having more virus makes it easier to spread to others.
0: Like more than a million parents here in um, our state of Arizona, I get my kids lunch ready for the day, get their backpacks ready to go. Each of them gets their masks. I swear to God, I say (laughs) a a little prayer as I send them on their way, knowing that when they come home, they could be coming, bringing home COVID to their siblings, to the rest of their family. For children who do contract COVID at this point, how, if at all, is their prognosis different from adults who get it?
3: I think, uh, for again, as Dr. Vismara pointed out, um, no one's really quite sure as far as the virulence. Uh, of the Delta variant versus the 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 original coronavirus, the original COVID that came out. Um, So as far as impact on kids and how much sicker they're gonna get, again, I think the data's still coming in. Um, I think the important thing to note is, again, it's a little bit more easily spread from kid to kid or from person to person. And now, um, even with our relatively low rates of vaccination, unfortunately in Arizona, um, our susceptible population is those kids that can't get vaccinated, which is under the age of 12. Um, And so from a per number of kids standpoint, the numbers are higher, certainly of COVID infection, Uh, but per number of population, it's gonna skew towards kids now too. And so I think there's gonna be a perception. Um, I I certainly think that kids are getting it more than they did before, but it's gonna look even more skewed now because they're a very uh, susceptible population just based on their age.
2: I think it's important to remember um, that to keep perspective on this, it's really difficult as a parent, number one, and number two, just given what we see reported in the media all the time, that there's still less than 1% of kids who get infected with COVID who are actually symptomatic end up in the hospital. So it is still a very, very small number of the total, of uh, COVID infections in kids who get actually hospitalized with
1: it. So let me ask you about that most acute population, the one that is every parent's nightmare, frankly, for the children who do wind up requiring hospitalization. Walk us through what that looks like from your vantage point. How is, what is that? look like in terms of the children's ability to understand what they're going through, your ability to uh, give care, uh, and the emotional toll I'm sure that this has to take.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, pediatrics is such a varied population. Where you've got everything from from little babies to infants all the way through to, to older kids and then ultimately teenagers. Um, we've got a couple of different populations of of susceptible kids here and COVID positive kids, we have uh, moms that come in and deliver when they're COVID positive. Um, and although the baby has obviously no understanding what's happening, uh, either you take the choice of rooming in with your COVID positive mom, where the mom has the choice of the baby rooming in with her um, and taking the risk of spreading COVID to the baby, or if she feels that that's not safe, then isolating the baby from the mom in an isolate in the NICU, which of course is going to impact the mom and the baby's ability to bond. It's going to impact how that baby is fed. It's going to impact the care of the infant. The baby has to get swapped um, at 24 hours of age. And again, at 48 hours of age per, per the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations. So now you're doing stuff to a baby, um, which, you know, in those first two days of life, none of us remember, but I'm pretty sure they were hard. <laughs> um, it was stressful. So you're adding more to that. Um, certainly the infants that come in, you know, toddlers um, are classic runny nose and cough and cold for eight months out of every year. I mean, that's that's the classic normal is they're supposed to be sick for eight months out of the year. Uh, and now the stress of is it COVID or is it just a regular cold? The additional testing that has to happen Um Again, whether you try to isolate your kid or you mean to or not, you end up isolating a little bit just to try and limit that spread, and that's going to have an effect on the kid. Um, as they get older into the six, seven, eight, nine age, kids are naturally scared of things, and their ability to understand stuff is limited. Just from a normal cognitive standpoint, you can't explain this stuff to them. They simply don't have the brain to understand it yet. Uh, And their natural thing is to be a little scared of it. And so now you're adding an additional fear to it. Um, Then you get into the teenage population, and depending on what part of, what demographic of society you've grown up in, what your ethnic background is, depending on your education level, your parents' education level, depending on, to a certain degree, which news network your family is tuning into, uh, you have certain perceptions about how bad it's going to be, how bad it isn't. Um, The internet is never our friend. There is always uh, someone who knows absolutely what's going on. Uh, And that, of course, is the person who knows the least about what's going on. And our teenagers are tuning into these people too, right? They're getting uh, through social media, through internet channels, through YouTube channels. They're getting a lot of disinformation um, that's out there. And so they have preconceived notions. And so it's very difficult for us as physicians to try and translate what we do know about COVID uh, to these very different populations with different backgrounds coming in. And so the conversations are different every single time. Um, And whether your patient, whether you're sorry, whether your kid is sick with a broken arm or whether your kid is sick with possibly COVID uh, a parent's stress is a parent's stress, right? Nobody likes having their, their child in the hospital. And so there's just so much stress involved in it. And unfortunately, with COVID, we don't know which way it's going to go with any given kid. Kids, again, are, more, are less likely to get it. Kids are less likely to get sick with it. But you don't know which one. Uh, and so you have to, we have to be vigilant um, and sort of, you know, you, you want parents to be prepared for bad outcomes, but you don't want to tell them a bad outcome is coming for sure, because it's just going to freak everybody out. So we're trying to balance that.
0: So of the children who are hospitalized with COVID, what does that look like broadly? Can you sort of give us a sense of what that scenario, that worst nightmare would look like?
3: Uh, Sure. I mean, what that looks like, it runs the gamut from that kid who comes into the emergency department with absolutely nothing related to COVID that needs to be admitted to the hospital for Diarrhea and dehydration, having to get a COVID swab and ended up being positive and asymptomatic and still needing to be isolated. Best case scenario. All the way through to kids who have very mild respiratory illness, just need a little bit of oxygen for a day or two. All the way to kids who have lobar pneumonias. You know, an entire lobe of the lung is socked in with a pneumonia with effusions and fluid around it. Um... All the way through to some kids who get very sick and go into heart failure or lung, you know, lung failure, respiratory failure, heart failure due to COVID. Um, and then of course, what we faced a few months ago with the post COVID, uh, the MIS-C that was out there. Certainly, we had uh, at least, a, I think a dozen or so kids in with MIS-C and then all of those kids getting echocardiograms or ultrasounds of the heart to make sure that their heart vessels are, are not dilated, making sure their heart function is normal. Um, all of this adds stress and adds time and obviously cost to the whole system. Uh, and it, it, so it really runs a gamut. Again, it's everything from a kid who just happened to be COVID positive and now everyone's scared to a kid who's very sick from COVID um, and ends up being in the ICU on a ventilator, getting IV medications um, and, you know, the lung just being eaten away to uh, sort of colloquially put it uh, by this virus. So it could be anything.
2: I would say too up until the last month or so before the Delta variant, the majority of what we were seeing was the post-COVID syndrome that Dr. Perdon mentioned. It's Miss C and that it's multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So MISC, we just call it MISC. That is what we were actually seeing way more than acute COVID infections was the post-COVID syndrome. So these are kids who had been infected with COVID, maybe they were asymptomatic, maybe they were mildly symptomatic, and then four to six weeks later developed fevers and an inflammatory syndrome that required, sometimes required steroids in order to to make them better. But that's what we were seeing more commonly, I think, prior to this, um, the Delta variant. So and we'll see as things progress from here, we are starting to see other respiratory illnesses now as kids go back to school. And so that, in combination with the Delta variant, uh, we'll have to see how, what that looks like here in the next few months.
1: Along those lines, um, do we have any sense of what the long-term effects in, of COVID in children will be compared to adults? Um, It seems like this area in particular is especially evolving, at least for those of us who are not in medicine, uh, that we're just grappling with what this will ultimately mean for people. Is there any reason to think that children will have any worse or better outcomes uh, on the other side of this?
2: So I'm sure that you've heard about long covid Which is a phenomenon that we most commonly see in adult patients where they have lingering effects of that show up in various ways for months and months after COVID. We have not seen that in children. Um, There are older adolescents who might grapple with that long COVID and lingering effects a little bit more, but at least in children, we haven't seen very much of that at all. So I'm cautiously optimistic that. There will be very few, if any, long term effects in the majority of kids who get COVID.
3: I think the long term effect in kids we're gonna have to worry about is on their mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen an inordinately high, uh, large increase in suicide attempts. Uh, We've seen a much, uh, a huge increase in substance use, Uh, and not just marijuana and alcohol, but kids coming in with opiate use, you know, Percocets and fentanyls. Um, I think there's going to be a significant long-term mental health issue on kids, you know, not necessarily related to COVID itself, but our, as a society, our response to that. And again, I'm not trying to get into the politics of it, but a fact is a fact. um, As a medical community uh, in February of 2020 did not do a good job of really coming out and saying what we should have said was, hey, you know what? No, this is new for everybody. Give me a minute and try and figure this out, right? Give me four weeks, give me six weeks, let's wash our hands, let's wear a mask just for a little bit of time. Let's do some studies and give me a moment. Uh, And unfortunately, we didn't do that as a medical community and it allowed things to fill the niches, right? And that's what evolution does. It fills an empty niche uh, and the evolution of COVID thought process filled a variety of different niches and we've got all this misinformation out now. Um, And so that's the big long-term concern. Uh, that I'm worried about again. I talked about kids being naturally fearful of the unknown. That's an evolutionary response. You're supposed to be scared of the things you don't know, just in case they might hurt you. Uh, and now, every virus around the corner uh, has the potential to make me wear a mask to school for the next eight months. And it makes me scared to play with my friends, and it makes me stay in my room instead of going out into the sunshine. You know all the things that we know are good for kids. Uh, we can't do so. While I appreciate that, you know, if we sort of limit ourselves to the physical, hopefully we don't have a lot of long-term stuff, but I'm afraid of the long-term mental health issues that we're going to have in these kids as they grow.
0: So how has the politicization of some of these things, of mask wearing, of vaccines, of physical distancing How have they affected the behavior of some of your patients and patients' um, parents who you are encountering on a day-to-day basis?
2: The assumption that I make is that every parent is doing their absolute best as a parent and to protect their child. And unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation out there. And I think that some parents are more prone to being mistrustful of the medical community or of science in general um, or of U.S. government in general. And so I really try to remember that as I'm approaching these patients and to talk to them and their parents about being vaccinated and about what that means and about what we know to be true um, about the vaccine and about the dangers and risks of getting infected, too. And so I really tried to come at it from that standpoint and just be very factual and rely on the science and also reassure them that I'm a parent too and a physician, and I wear both of those hats all the time simultaneously, and that I also am doing the best that I can to protect my child and my patients.
3: Yeah. uh, Overcoming that mistrust is akin to overcoming that one bad test grade you got. It takes three more really good grades to try and bring your average back up off of one bad test. And it's the same sort of thing. One mistrustful moment is going to require three or four or five or ten good shows uh, before people come back to where we were, even, even close to being at the beginning of it. Uh, and unfortunately, that's what we're trying to overcome. And even for us, um, and, and disagreements in medicine are a normal thing. Disagreements in medicine happen every day, all the time. It's just now very much in the news. It's now just very much out there for everybody to see. Um, and so we're, we're sort of airing medicine's dirty laundry out for everyone to see. And, and it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, it's it's very complicated. Virology is not a simple thing. Virology is exceedingly complicated. Uh, and even you know those of us who are very learned and don't understand it. I certainly don't get it nearly as well as Dr. Busemeyer does. And so to explain that stuff to people who don't have the training uh, it becomes very difficult.
1: about to enter a season that typically brings us RSV cases, uh, the flu, colds, and other respiratory illnesses that you're uh, all familiar with. Will there be enough beds and staff to care for all those cases? How does that complicate the battle against COVID?
3: Beds are an issue. Beds, staff in particular, is a huge issue. Um, the you know medical staff, we're not Generally speaking, we're not going anywhere. We're sort of in it. Um, our, our, unfortunately, our nursing staff, which really, when you look at it from a frontline standpoint, um, our, our nursing staff are the ones that are in that patient's room all the time, right? Much more frequently than, than we are as physicians. Their exposure level is much higher. When you look at um, healthcare worker fatality rates or illness rates due to COVID it's been much, the nursing staff has been much more effective than the physician staff. Um, and we have had nurses leave the profession. Um, they simply don't see the benefit outweighing the risk there for themselves and more importantly for their families, right? They get tired. of. I have, a, I have a, quite a few friends that are nurses and they were sleeping in the trailer out in the driveway when this first started, you know, and, and that's terrible because they didn't want to bring COVID into their kids. And so um, they're very highly impacted by it. A lot of nurses left the um, nurses have not gone into the profession from the nursing school standpoint, those numbers are down too. So even if the beds are available, it's like tables in a restaurant, just you know, we always go into a restaurant, they've got a hundred tables. Why am I on the waiting list? Cause they've only got four waiters. Uh, it's the same thing. You can have a hundred beds, but if you've only got six nurses, you can only fill 18 of those beds. Um, so it, it really, that's been a huge impact for us. Um. And as you said, it all gets mixed in. The RSV numbers and the flu numbers make no sense right now. Um, If you look at other parts of the world, their summertime RSV rates were higher than their wintertime RSV rates. We've had RSV coming in early now for us, and it's not the usual RSV variant. It's B as opposed to A, which it usually is. And so there's been a whole bunch of skews. Uh, because of this, because of kids not being exposed to them normally, because of mask wearing, not mask wearing. So there's a whole variety of things that have really complicated where this is going to be. And I think anybody that tries to sit down with a crystal ball and predict where we're going to be a month from now, two months from now, certainly four months from now, uh, is just that, sitting in front of a crystal ball. uh, And there's no such thing.
2: The other thing to remember, too, is that... um, when we say or when you hear on the news that, oh, there's no pediatric beds, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of the available beds in pediatrics are filled with COVID patients. A lot of the hospitals that are not freestanding children's hospitals, so every hospital other than Phoenix Children's here in this area, many of them have uh, created adult beds from the PEDS beds. And so because of the overflow, because of the influx of adult patients into the hospital, so At many places, they've cut down the number of pediatric beds they have available just to make room for the adult COVID patients, too. So that's another thing to think about. It's not that all the peds beds are taken over by COVID. What are we going to do? It's that we just have fewer beds available because we need room for all of the adults, too.
0: Okay, I'm going to do rapid round on these next couple of questions, and I understand that you are not offering any sort of medical advice to our audience, but I do have a couple of questions that have cropped up. Um, Aside from some of the more ideological reasons that people hold about mask wearing, some of the complaints that we hear are um, that wearing a mask all day over your nose and your mouth could create some sort of health issues for children. Is there any basis um, to believe that? No. No. And how effective are masks for children in a school setting?
3: Right. So all the mask studies that say they don't stop viruses, they're not intended to stop viruses. They're intended to stop the droplet in which viruses live. So when you sneeze, we've all seen that terrible picture of the sneeze cloud in front of the person. That's what viruses are living on and riding on. So that's what you're out to stop. It's, it's yes, viruses are smaller than the hole in the mask. I know that, but viruses don't eject out of you just by themselves. So masks work.
0: Agree. All right. One other quick question. So we know that the minimum age to receive a COVID vaccine is 12 years old. I know people. I know people who know people who are going out and getting their 11-and-a-half-year-olds, for example, vaccinated because there really is no, uh, at some of these clinics, no um, rigorous verification of age. Is the 12-year-old minimum a suggestion, a goalpost, or a hard line? Will something bad happen to children if they get it a few months early?
2: So the 12 12- year year, age minimum is a hard line right now. That's the official recommendation. That's where it's been most rigorously studied. There are ongoing studies right now in the 5 to 11-year-old age group, and there's studies that even go below 5 years. But the next round of ages that is likely to be uh, approved is the 5 to 11-year-olds. And those studies are in the process of wrapping up now. So we should have more data on that, I would say October, November, December at the latest. I can't speculate when the vaccine will be approved for kids down to five years of age, but I do know that we're very close to getting all of the data from those studies, and that will likely be coming in the next several months. So, as far as I'm concerned, 12-year is the hardline minimum for giving the vaccine right now. That's what's been studied. That's the, what the data shows has been safe. And so that's what we
0: recommend.
3: Right. The idea is always balancing risks and benefits. Uh, any hardline age cutoff in pediatrics is always based on did they study in that age group or not. I agree that an 11 and three-quarter year old physiologically is no different than a 12-year-old. Most likely the, it hasn't been studied. And as a physician recommending a thing, you have to follow the rules as to what's been studied and what's been shown to be safe and not. And that's the age 12.
1: If I could ask one last question, Um, this is probably uh, something you all are not uh, fond of, but if you could look into your crystal ball for us. We have a couple of competing things here. We have uh, some very effective vaccines on offer and they are uh, working their way down to younger age groups. We also have more serious variants, uh, the Delta one being especially uh, deadly and uh, transmissible uh, with concerns about what may come next. Uh, As you look into the crystal ball, where do you think we're going to be six months or a year from now in managing this, especially for uh, this young population that you focus on?
2: That's an excellent question. I wish I did have my crystal ball. What I can say with certainty is that there are going to be more variants That's just what viruses do, and there's very much a selective pressure on viruses to mutate and to do what they want to do to maintain their life cycle, which is infect people. So there will be more variants. I can't say whether it's going to be worse than Delta, the same as Delta, not as bad as the Delta variant, but I can't say that there will continue to be variants. So the best thing that we can do is just get everybody vaccinated. And when the vaccine is approved for kids, get the kids vaccinated. Because the less that the virus is able to circulate in the population, the less chance it has to mutate and become more dangerous.
3: The way we decrease our viral load is by increasing our herd immunity. The only way humans have ever achieved herd immunity against any disease is through vaccination. We have had measles and mumps and rubella for thousands of years, and it wasn't until the 1960s when we finally achieved herd immunity through vaccination. And we've all, people before that all got it. It wasn't like it wasn't spreading around, but we didn't achieve herd immunity until we could vaccinate against it and decrease the circulating viral load of those things, of those organisms. And that's what we need to do with COVID. My crystal ball tells me that COVID uh, is possibly gonna become endemic instead of epidemic, meaning it is something that we face on a yearly basis A new variant, just like flu, just like RSV, it's something that we can expect to see a little bit of. But if we have vaccines that come out on a yearly basis, like we do with flu, if we can have um, a general population that is immune against all, you know, you get last year's flu vaccine and last year's flu vaccine, it protects you against the flus to come too, because it's not going to be totally different. Same thing with, with COVID. If you can get two or three years worth of COVID vaccines in you, potentially, uh, we have some immunity against the COVIDs that are going to come as well. And so unfortunately, my crystal ball, uh, and it's not as, as clear as Dr. Be March, I must admit, uh, it's not as learned a crystal ball. Uh, I think we have an endemic issue coming upon us. Um, and so we seek to do all the things we knew we, we know to prevent spread of infectious disease, which is wash your hands. Uh, number one, and when you're sick, don't cough and sneeze on people.
0: All right, doctors, well, thank you so, so much for coming on. If parents, teachers, children have questions, where would you point them to for fact based, science based information about COVID 19?
2: Um, I would recommend the first place to go would be healthychildren.org. And that is run by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And from that site, there are other references that parents and children can go to if they want more information. But that's where I would start, healthychildren.org.
0: That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. Before you go, please rate and review our show and share this episode with a friend, a neighbor, or a parent. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget.
1: And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com.
0: You can also follow this show and other Arizona Republic podcasts, like Valley 101, on Twitter at Podcasts. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.